Why, hello, 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 podcast listeners. On tonight's episode, we celebrate 40 years of marriage between two special souls I am proud to call my parents. So sit back and enjoy the episode. And feel free to give us feedback at www.alexandnoramakeapodcast.com. Story of two strange souls. He was committed to as a spiritual goal Did she master the culinary arts Baking bread on the weekend While the bread was rising They walked Arthur the dog While the bread was rising Some say love transcends time. Others say where there is love, there is marriage. And others say that conversation is the key to a lasting union. Which brings us to the story of two young journalists honing their craft, the art of storytelling in Kansas City, Missouri in the 1970s. The decade brought with it Watergate and the first attack of many on the Democratic National Party, a horrific experience for Allison Arnett, a pretty girl from Western Kansas, and the entire Stimel family. As her new beau, Steve Morantz, a proud Central High graduate, would learn, the Stimel family and his soon-to-be mother-in-law spent almost all of their time drinking wine and talking politics. He quickly got up to speed. Steve lived on the other side of the plaza from me. I lived um, on Charlotte Street, and I think he lived somewhere around the area where Dirk lived later. And I remember that he had a, the black dog named Missy, and uh, that Missy was was a very uh, close companion to Steve and Allison, liked Missy. And I also remember for some reason uh, that Allison told me why this was, I don't know, or why I remember it, I can't recall, but that Steve always ate rice, rice with this, rice with that, rice every day. And maybe that was sort of a precursor to Steve's broccoli shakes, but I do remember the rice story. As with many young adults, job prospects called, and the couple found themselves on top of a hill in Swampscott, a suburb just north of Boston, following the blizzard of 78 that drove them out of their house and into a month-long European adventure. Imagine that two Midwesterners with an expansive ocean view. Well, there's other things I can remember. I remember being in Winthrop, and this was not a Steve story, but Allison and I deciding we needed to uh, boil a lobster since that was a Boston sort of thing to do, and we went and bought two lobsters and uh, with some trepidation brought them back in the car. They were making quite a bit of noise back there. And when we got into the house, we weren't sure what to do with them. So we put them in the sink, and we ran some water on them, and and then uh, all of a sudden they appeared to be dead. This didn't have anything to do with Steve, but we called up a friend of Allison's, and she said, well, they're probably in a deep coma because they're salt water, and uh, we just ran fresh water on them, but they'll probably be okay to eat. 
So that was kind of an introduction to the uh, Boston culture. They planned their wedding in six days for August 4th, 1979, in the courtroom that held the Salem witch trials. The couple felt that the history of the courtroom embodied their commitment to equality. Despite 100-degree weather, Allison baked them a three-tier cake, coining Steve's wish for his headstone, at least he ate well. They celebrated the night away on the symbol for all Democrats, the Kennedy's sailing boat, and a German feast in Boston. Forty years ago was the year ESPN launched, and Paul McCartney set out on his own with wings. The Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series thrilling Steve that coming October. And Luke Goodrow was born, but no one knew that yet. I have a memory that I would never forget. It was the morning of your wedding, and I was staying at your house, and um, I remember going down to your kitchen for a cup of coffee, and there was the bride, Allison, in a pair of shorts, very casually with her hair wrapped up in a towel, making a 16-egg Dundee cake. Little would I know that we would all come to recognize Allison for her amazing culinary skills over the years, but that should have been a clue because very few brides make such a fabulous cake and for themselves the morning of their wedding. So that started a great day of sailing and um, wonderful wine and champagne and, um, and then an evening at a beautiful German restaurant with baked Alaska um, that was flambe. It was so fabulous. Although conversation was important to the couple, neither knew how essential it was to their survival until the birth of their first child, Nora, in 1982. Despite their best efforts, she never stopped talking, and each learned how to engage her as best they could. When Alex, their son, was born in 1986, each sighed for relief, hoping Alex would absorb Nora's noise. No such luck, as Alex spent most of his childhood stepping on his mother's feet, passing her trash, and telling the world he was bored. I went to live with Allison and Steve in the fall of 1986, just returned home from a two-year stint in South America with the Peace Corps. While there, I'd take care of Nora, who was then three and a half, and Alex was seven months old, while Allison returned to full-time work at the Globe. I stayed with them for a little over a year, and it was a really wonderful experience, getting to know my niece and nephew, having the chance to spend that much time with Allison, and I also managed to squeeze in some time to figure out my next steps for graduate school. There were lots of fun and warm memories of that time. Now and then, Steve and I would sit upstairs and watch TV, probably the Red Sox, with the kids in bed and Allison working the night shift. Steve sometimes would talk to me about his feelings for Allison, the ways that he admired her and depended on her and how much he loved her. I recall feeling a little bit uncomfortable being from the Midwest where people don't really talk about their feelings like that out in the open. But I also think that this experience modeled for me what a true, mature, and loving relationship looks like. Yet the children brought with them happiness, excitement, creativity, and conversation, and for Alex in particular, music. While Nora focused her efforts on social engagements and finely tuned negotiation skills, Alex became a musical savant and shocked the Swampscott Middle School with Elm's biggest hits. 
Allison and Steve thrived at the Boston Globe, a newspaper that would later break the biggest story to rock the Catholic Church. They excelled in their craft and made friends, working nights and weekends in an effort to share the story and report the truth. The journalistic ethic was something that both took to heart and that shaped their conversations as they sat in the kitchen every morning, reading newspapers, drinking coffee, green tea, and looking out onto the Boston skyline. Even when Steve took quick naps in the parking lot of the Globe, his colleagues understood because he was a good reporter and a young father. Hey everyone, Mike Rosendi's here with a few wandering thoughts about my old friends and former Boston Globe colleagues, Steve and Allison. Well, first off, love is weird, right? I mean, when Steve and Allison first arrived at the Globe, no one could figure out what Allison was doing with this guy. I mean, here's this very refined woman wooed away from the august New York Times to be a high-level editor with nothing but big paychecks and the brightest of futures ahead of her. And here's Steve, hired away from some rag in the Midwest no one ever heard of, to cover, are you kidding? Hockey. The Bruins. I mean, to the editors in the glass offices at the Globe, covering the Bruins and their fans was no better than covering a bunch of drunks. So the years go by, and Allison is so refined and so sophisticated that the big shots at the Globe practically get down on their knees and beg her to be the restaurant critic. Meanwhile, Steve has a new beat, too. Boxing. Great. I mean, how low can you go, right? So here you have Allison spending her evenings at the Ritz, La Spellier, Aujourd'hui, and here's Steve spending his evenings watching worn-out palookas at faded arenas like the Wonderland Ballroom. Anyway, the years go by, and Allison is something like third in line to take over the paper. Steve thinks he's on his way up, too, when he gets tapped for a new beat. City Hall. Great, he says, finally out of the icy hot racket. But what does he find? Quislings, extortionists, self-promoters, boozers. My point being, no one could ever figure out what Allison was doing with this guy. But love is weird, right? Because 40 years later, they're still together, still in love, while the rest of us are, well, don't get me started. All I can say is, Steve and Allison obviously know something the rest of us don't. And life went on. Kurt Cobain died, heroin chic hit, Nora tried to convince her mother to let her travel with fish, and Allison became the talk of the restaurant town in Boston. Her storytelling had hit food, and Steve could not have been happier. The family ate for free for 10 years, and Nora and Alex lost all perspective on what it would mean to eat anywhere but Radius, Jean-Georges, or Le Spaye. Life was good. Dining with Allison by Laney. Allison became the restaurant critic the same year I had my second child, Max. That was 1992. So at the beginning, I didn't eat out very much with her. In 1994, I went back to work full-time in Boston, downtown Boston and soon became part of the gang of Globe colleagues that would accompany Allison out to dinner. Dinner with her friends at the Globe was great fun for me. I was usually the only non-journalist, but I always enjoyed the lively conversation at dinner. These Globe friends were serious diners, and they loved to eat. Four friends, four different meals, and assorted appetizers. The plates would whirl around and around, and Allison would sample from our plates, quietly processing her own reactions, but never revealing her feelings. The review would come out, and every week I made it a point to read the restaurant review. I loved reading her carefully thought out reviews. This is an important point. The gang could order anything from the menu. 
Sometime later, after many dinners eating out with Allison in the 90s, I was reading an additional Allison op-ed column in the paper. She had written a pithy little essay about the kind of people she regularly dined with. There was the glutton, there was the diner who always ordered the most expensive thing, and then there was the one-trick pony. Almost immediately, I realized that was me. I was the one-trick pony because almost every time I dined with the restaurant critic, my friend Allison, unwittingly, I usually ordered the same thing, a pasta dish with seafood, preferably little clams. I laughed out loud. I was the one-trick pony, and just like her insightful writing, she was spot on about me, and I love her for it. As their children got older and left for college and travels in Rome, Steve and Allison worried that the art of conversation would wane within the family, but instead the Marances doubled down. Steve took a job with ESPN, which ironically launched the year he married, and he told the story of his high school during the civil rights era with the well-renowned publication of The Rhythm Boys. Nora and Allison realized that smartphones could keep them going with endless chatter, and Alex became a constant fixture in the Cambridge music scene. Against the backdrop of hope for people in progress, Steve and Allison celebrated the inauguration of Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States of America. With love in their hearts and a feeling that anything was possible, they took on their biggest challenge to date, an Irish-Welsh terrier infamously known throughout Swampscott as King Arthur. You know, I think the thing that really, truly holds them together is Arthur. Um, I think Arthur is sort of the glue that holds them together as a couple. Um, He tests them both. He finds out what their boundaries are. He rides right up against them, and then he rides right over them and barks as loud as he can. Uh, Steve and I visited a historical house near what may have been Washington crossing the Delaware. It could have been something else. It was years ago. We we did a lot of touring around. So after we took a tour of the house, the historical house, Steve began a conversation with the tour guide. He told the tour guide in all seriousness that he was related to the original owner of the house. He said it in a way that was very convincing to the tour guide about Steve's relationship to the owner. Steve loved these kinds of pranks, and I knew him well enough to call him on his storytelling. He appreciated that I know him that well. Um, I think that's it. Uh, I wish everybody well. Thank you. Nora and Luke toasted to their future on the Boston waterfront in a wedding planned by Allison and her restaurant insiders. Alex met Rose, the only other Nebraskan in Boston, and celebrated with friends and family deep amongst the Belmont flowers. Allison and Steve were happy that more people were added to their daily exchanges and that Luke and Rose engaged them in conversation about politics, music, and cooking, and all celebrated the musical inclinations of their grandson, Harris, a child who loved to converse almost as much as he loved his gamma and baka. My first impressions of Allison, I remember... um, very early on in my relationship with Nora, uh, I went up to Swampscott for the night and I was going to cook dinner for the family. And I knew that Allison, being a food critic for many years at the Globe, um, had a keen sense of taste. And I was completely and utterly petrified 
to cook dinner for her. Um, and I thought, oh my God, whatever I do, it will be wrong. And whatever I do, it will be purloined in the Sunday paper. And I'll never be able to live it down. Um, so I was really nervous and I was trying to pick the right recipe and the right ingredients. And I was so nervous that I can't even recall what the meal was now. Um, but the thing that I do remember is that all my fear was for nothing. Allison spent the entire night in the kitchen with me asking me about what I was doing and asking me about what I liked about cooking and sort of what my history with food was. And she sort of made me feel welcome and that she was truly interested in what I was doing and why I was, why I liked to cook so much. So I think my fears were completely unwarranted. The young journalists from the Midwest realized they were not so young anymore. Forty years had passed since they had said their vows on a hot, sweaty day in the Salem courthouse. Both had retired, but kept busy, playing golf, teaching at Harvard, hosting dinner parties, and seeing music with friends, and each dedicated time to promote equality and purpose through democratic voting efforts, as a contrast to the hate and anger deep within the White House. Lisa and I recently saw the new Lion King movie, and when I received your request to contribute to your podcast for Allison and Steve, I couldn't get the song Circle of Life out of my head. Your mom and dad and Lisa and I have come full circle. When we would get together years ago, the conversation would always revolve around our kids. We'd be comparing notes on what the latest trends, controversies, and news were involving our kids. We've recently come full circle. You kids are no longer the center of the conversation, but it is the grandkids and what they are doing to make us laugh each day. It is the very scary thought because I think we're way too young to be grandparents. Congratulations, Allison and Steve. We've enjoyed the ride through life with you, and we look forward to continuing the ride. Allison and Steve sat with their two children on what was likely the last original family vacation, watching a movie about the Beatles, the band that defined their generation. As they looked around the suburban movie theater in Logan, Ohio, and considered the reaction of the audience, they both wondered what was missing from the movie's plot. The story was incomplete. The family debated the movie's merits on the ride back to the airport motel, and the analysis continued the next morning as Alex shared commentary on the specific flaws in the movie, while Steve conceded that the concept was clever. No one could quite put their finger on what went wrong, as the Beatles were always known for hits, but all agreed that Harris's rendition of the Yellow Submarine was more convincing. And the conversation continued. Happy anniversary, Mother and Dad. Thanks so much for everything you do for us. We love you. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Allison and Steve. 
Rose is so lucky to have married into such a wonderful family. Wishing you love and joy from Sheila and Jim. Many congratulations, Steve and Allison, on your 40-year anniversary. Wishing you many, many more to come. I love you, Leah. Anyway, um, it's been a, a fast 40 years, and you've um, got two incredible children who are now young adults, married with their own lives, and you've got little Harris. But um, I just want to wish you all the best in health, in love, and life, and together. Wishing you much love. Steve and Allison, my wonderful friends, huge congrats on your 40th. You guys are the best in-laws ever. Happy anniversary, love, Rose. Hopefully, everyone will enjoy this little uh, walk back through history, and hopefully I've got some of my facts right. Anyway, again. True story of two strange souls. He was committed to green tea as a spiritual goal. Master the